This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Full of Matthew chapter 2. Verses 13 through 23. Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. Really, in a sense, gives us the rest of the story from the scriptures that we have been reading and hearing this evening. Now, when they had departed, that is, the wise men... When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Not everyone was happy about the birth of baby Jesus. He was born into a world where sin reigns, a place where power is protected, a place where enemies are real, and a place where all too often human life is cheap. While other passages that we read and have read this evening that tell us of Jesus' birth may fill us with a sense of wonder, even give us a nostalgic sense of the warm fuzzies, This passage does not. Rather, it sends cold chills down the spine. It it rather horrifies than warms the heart. A jealous and paranoid ruler brutally lashes out to protect his power in hopes of ridding himself of this newborn threat, this would-be Messiah. Herod has slaughtered the toddler sons of Bethlehem's mothers. 
Our passage comprises three events, each one having to do with Jesus' escape from Herod's murderous intentions, and each one also being a fulfillment, as Matthew notes, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The first event is the family's flight to Egypt. That night after the departure of the wise men, after they had come and worshipped Jesus, presented him with their gifts, after they had left, and after apparently they had gone to sleep, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream and gives him instructions about the child and his mother. And again, the natural order, mother and child, is reversed about the child and his mother and to flee to Egypt. Now, Egypt was a natural place for Jews fleeing Israel, seeking refuge. It was nearby. It was a well-ordered Roman province outside of Herod's jurisdiction. And early records tell us that there were as many as a million Jews living in Egypt. And certainly in the Old Testament, we read of earlier generations of Israelites, whether in groups or individuals who... Uh, fled Israel and fled to Egypt. And so Joseph takes his family and they go to Egypt and then they are to remain there until the Lord gave them word to return. Well, why? Why this haste? Why this departure in the evening? And the angel tells him, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Now, we can only imagine Joseph's reaction to that, but the Bible doesn't record any reaction other than, as we've seen consistently, his obedience to the word of the Lord to rouse Mary to take the child and in the night depart for Egypt, the border of which was some 75 miles away. And Matthew notes this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew's quoting here Hosea 11, verse 1, in which God remembers his love for Israel while they were in Egypt and how he brought them, how he called them out of Egypt. And that's all well and good, but what does that have to do with Jesus? How is his going to Egypt a fulfillment of this verse? Well, for one thing, in Hosea, God refers to Israel as his son, and certainly Jesus is his true and his only begotten son in a way that Israel was not. Israel something of a type or foreshadowing of Christ in that way. And not only is Jesus the true son of the Father, he is also the true Israel of God. He is the embodiment of Israel. All that Israel was meant to be, and frankly never was, Jesus is. And Matthew especially likes to show how Israel's times, the, the events that, that, that occur to Israel in the Old Testament are echoed or repeated or recapitulated in the life of Jesus. For example, Matthew records in chapter 4 of his gospel how Jesus went out into the wilderness and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights fast, uh, 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 was attacked by the, the Satan and faced the temptations of the devil in his weakened condition. And a, an echo there of the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness before God brought them into the promised land. Well, here Jesus goes down to Egypt in order that like Israel of old, 
Jesus, his true son, would be called up out of Egypt. And there's a distinct redemptive echo here, just as the Lord brought Egypt out of, or Israel out of Egypt to constitute them his covenant people at Mount Sinai. So the Lord calls Jesus, his Messiah, out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate a new covenant, a new covenant of redemption through Jesus' blood. And so Jesus fulfills the hope of Israel in this way. Now, the flight to Egypt, the prophecy fulfilled in it, teaches us that God is fulfilling his Old Testament promises. He is fulfilling that to which Israel pointed in the Old Testament. And he is in Christ forming his new Israel, his new people in Christ. Well, the second event that we have here in this passage is found in verses 16 through 18. And that is the slaughter of the young boys of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was only about five miles away from Jerusalem to the south. And so Herod could reasonably expect that the wise men would return in a day or two as he had asked them to go and find the child and come back and report to him where the child was under the guise that he was going to go and worship them. Of course, he had no intentions of doing so. He simply wanted to use these wise men to find the child for him. Well, after more than a day or two had passed and Herod began to realize that these wise men were not coming back, he became extremely angry. And we read that he sent soldiers and had them raid the homes of Bethlehem and its vicinity and to kill every male child aged two and younger. Now, the fact that this horrific event is recorded only in Matthew and is not recorded in any sources outside of the Bible have led some to call into question the truth of this story. In fact, to charge Matthew with having made it up. However, that charge is unwarranted, uh, and its appearance nowhere else, frankly, is not uh, very remarkable. Bethlehem was not a large town. Uh, an educated guess based on its size and based on the statistics uh, estimating how many children might be at that age. Uh, there may be, have been as many as 20 uh, children who were killed by Herod in this slaughter. A disaster for Bethlehem and its citizens to be sure, but a mere blip, a mere blip in comparison with Herod's other atrocities. Uh, his brutality, especially carried out late in his life when his paranoia began to take over. And so for historians of that time, what happened in Bethlehem was honestly worthy of little notice, if any. Well, again, Matthew quotes an Old Testament prophecy, this time from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in its original context, in Jeremiah, that passage depicted the lamentation of the mothers of Israel as they were bewailing their sons being led off into exile. In fact, the city of Ramah was about five miles or so to the north of Jerusalem and would have been one of the first towns they passed by as they were being led into exile out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, 
into Babylon. The mothers are personified here in Jeremiah as Rachel, uh, mother, of course, of Joseph and Benjamin, whose own sons were thought at one point to be no more in Joseph's case or feared to become no more in Benjamin's case. Well, now Matthew takes that passage and he applies it to the mothers in first century Israel who were in anguish over the babies Herod had massacred. But while Matthew quotes only that one verse from Jeremiah, it should also be noted that that prophecy continues after verse 15 with a word of hope. The promise of the return of the exiles. And in fact, if you know Jeremiah, you know that 31 goes on to promise the new covenant that God would make with his people. And the Israelites did, in fact, return from exile. And all of this points to the fact that Jesus would, in due course, return from his exile in Egypt. And in his return from exile in death, that is to say his resurrection, he would remove even the sting of death itself. The third event that we find here in this passage is that of Jesus' return to Israel. This time not to Bethlehem, but to the northern Galilean town of Nazareth. Now, we read in Luke's gospel that Joseph and Mary were from Nazareth, were living in Nazareth when they went to Bethlehem in order to be registered. Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral city. It was the city of David, a relatively insignificant place, but at least noteworthy as the birthplace of David. Well, it was there in Bethlehem Jesus was born. And apparently, they planned to make Bethlehem their home. But of course, they had to flee to Egypt to protect Jesus' life. Well, after Herod's death, an angel of the Lord appears again to Joseph and instructs him to return to Israel. It was now safe to do so. Herod had died. And so they left Egypt for Israel. But then they heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea. After Herod's death, the... the territory he governed was divided into four quadrants, each of which was ruled by one of his sons. Archelaus ruled over Judea. Archelaus was so bad that he was removed by the Romans in the year A.D. 6, some eight years or so after he took office. Archelaus was noted for his cruelty in a day when there was no scarcity of cruel men. So naturally, Joseph, hearing of him, was concerned about returning to Bethlehem. His concern was reinforced by a dream. So instead, they headed up north to Nazareth in Galilee. Well, once again, Matthew notes a fulfillment. That what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, that's exciting, another fulfilled prophecy. There's just one problem. You will find those words nowhere in the prophets. You will find those words, in fact, nowhere in the Old Testament. Well, what are we to make of that? Where was Matthew looking when he came up with this prophecy that he says is now filled in that Jesus is called a Nazarene? Well, one clue may lie in the fact that he refers not to the prophet, but to the prophets, plural where he says it was spoken by the prophets, referring rather to a general strand of prophetic teaching rather than a particular citation, rather than a particular place. 
His wording is also a little different here that might lead a translator to render it instead of a direct quotation, maybe an indirect quotation, so that it would read something like this, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene. But what's the point? So what, that he's called a Nazarene? Well, there's several ideas exactly what Matthew's getting at here, one of which is this. Nazareth was not much of a place. It was a forgotten and unimportant town in Galilee. In fact, Nazareth was viewed with positive contempt as uh, something of a, of a Hicksville. And it seemed that to call someone a Nazarene was to insult him, much as later people called the early believers in Jesus Christians, not as a title of honor, but as a title of derision. To call someone a Nazarene was not a compliment. And in fact, we see this borne out in John chapter 1. You may remember how Philip comes to his friend Nathaniel and says to him, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And you'll recall Nathaniel's memorable response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that was the thinking. That was the attitude toward this town. And so that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, along with telling us where he grew up, where he hails from, may also foreshadow the scorn and contempt he would face in the eyes of many. And indeed, the prophet Isaiah was one of those who described Jesus as despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, he was a Nazarene. And understanding it in this way certainly fits the context. Matthew has pointed out the insignificant town in which Jesus was born, the shame and fear of his flight to Egypt, the grief and death surrounding his infancy. And so it would certainly be appropriate here to understand this verse as a reference to the despised backwater town of his childhood. In fact, if we look at each of these paragraphs, each of these events, each of these quotations that is fulfilled in Jesus, they all remind us of Jesus' humiliation in coming to this earth. We make the Christmas story pretty, and in many ways it is a beautiful thing. But we must also never forget that for Jesus it was a most humbling occurrence. For Jesus to leave the glory of heaven and be born in human flesh, it was humbling. It was humbling to be born in a barn because there was no room for him in the end. It was humbling for him to have to be whisked away to Egypt by his human father and mother to save his life. The one who brought stars into being to save his life. And it was humbling to be the cause, if only indirectly, of so much suffering in Bethlehem. It was humbling to grow up in the lowest of low towns. But even these things were just a hint of what was to come. The rejection he endured from his people. The emotional trauma and physical agony of the cross. And the spiritual judgment and wrath of his heavenly father as he bore the sins of his people. Well, why would he do it? He did it for us. He was willing to be so humbled for us because he loves us. He did it because there was no other way for sinners to be right with God 
You see, someone has to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. And either Jesus did it for you on the cross 2,000 years ago, or you will bear it yourself in hell for all eternity. God's wrath, God's justice must be satisfied. And Jesus loved his people, and he came to bear that wrath for them. Well, for whom did he do it? Well, he did it for you. If you'll humble yourselves, acknowledge that even your efforts at righteousness are so many sins for which you must ask forgiveness, and if you will trust in Jesus to save you. You see, we have a Savior who suffered the humiliation and the agony of hell. Figuratively and literally, the agony of hell for us who believe in him so that we would never have to. And that, my dear friends, is the greatest Christmas gift of all. May you and yours have a very blessed and very merry Christ-filled Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled when we think of the humiliation Jesus was willing to endure all to go to a cross, all to die for us, but ultimately for the joy set before him of having done the work you sent him to do, Father, and of having redeemed his people for himself. Father, we thank you for all of the joys of Christmas, the gifts, the lights, the decorations, the gatherings. But Lord, we pray that above all, Christ would be our greatest joy in Christmas. For we pray it in his name. Amen.